We've been working our way through it fairly slowly. Um, and I've told you, I've made mention multiple times that Mark is a very fast-paced book. Um, so it's been a little while since I reminded you or encouraged you to go through the entirety of it in one fell swoop. And I know that that's a challenge. I know that that's tough. That is one of those great things about having a, the apps and the, the internet and some recordings of it. You can listen to the Bible in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. Um, if you were to listen to the Gospel of Mark straight through, end to end, it's only about 90 minutes, which is less than a movie. So if you're able to watch through a movie without interruption, you can read through or listen through the Gospel of Mark in one fell swoop. And that helps you catch the entire picture of what's going on and seeing all of these events and activities and interactions that Jesus had. And you know, when we, when we slow down and we go verse by verse, section by section, we, we're staring at the trees and we're, we're inspecting them and we're learning them, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. So I want to encourage you, Take some time at some point in this upcoming week and either listen to or just if, if you're a really good reader and you want to just sit down and read through it yourself, either way. But observe and go through the entirety of the Gospel of Mark in one sitting and I think that it'll help you understand the big picture of everything that's going on. But we're getting ready to get into chapter 4. And this is probably one of the most familiar parables that you've ever heard. Um, it, is, it is well known. It happens a lot. There's tons and tons of writing on it. You could walk into a Christian bookstore and probably see a dozen different uh, things that talk about this one parable. And so as we get into it, I want to give you a heads up. I don't necessarily take it the way that a lot of people have. And, and I'm pretty hesitant to go against the, the norm of conservative thought, of, of good Bible teachers and the way that they approach things. But I think that there are some things in this parable that are often overlooked because people focus on one thing that I'm not so sure is the main focus. Now, I'm not saying that it's not part of it, but I don't think that it's the main focus. So we're going to be digging into this one. We'll take a look at it here in a moment. But I want to start you off with two questions. Then we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to answer those questions and dig into it. My two questions, what is a parable, and how do we deal with them? How do we interpret them? How do we understand them? We are about to go into a series of several parables that Jesus teaches, and I think we need to find the answers to those to establish the foundation of how to interpret, how to understand, how to deal with everything that's going to be coming up in the next couple of chapters because Jesus teaches in parables a lot. It's a very effective method and he's going to be teaching a lot of truth. But if we go into it with the wrong mindset and the wrong understanding of how to deal with it, then we have a tendency, people have a tendency, to get off and go the wrong direction and interpret it however they want it to be, not how Christ intended it. So, we are going to be answering those two questions and digging into this 
very well known. The parable of the sower and the seed. Sometimes it's called the parable of the soils because there are four different soils. But whatever you want to title it, whatever you want to call it, we're going to be digging into this one. Now it is a longer section, uh, 20 verses, but we're going to go ahead and begin in verse 1 and read through. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seed fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop, and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? Sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word, and the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it. And bear fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. <clears throat> now, I mentioned that this is one of the most famous, well-known parables. When you hear this parable, what, what have you heard about it? What do you think that it's dealing with? What's the focus of it? Okay, how people respond to the gospel. Okay. Good roots, okay. One of the things that I I often hear uh, and have read a lot is debates about, okay, which one's saved? Is this one saved? Is that one saved? Well, well, these sprang up, and then, so are they saved or are they not? That's where I don't think that this parable is focused on that. Are there, are there elements of that? Are there things that we can draw from that? Yes, definitely. But I don't think that this is setting up for us to understand who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. 
Okay, But in order to, to get to that, I want to talk a little bit, like I said, about what is a parable and how do we deal with parables? How do we understand parables? Parables are a teaching technique that Jesus uses a lot. And I mentioned last week that a parable, the, the word itself simply means to put two things side by side. Generally speaking, we're talking about a spiritual truth paired with a physical thing that they're familiar with. Something that they, they are easily able to understand next to something that's a little bit more difficult, a little bit more challenging. And so um, it's, a, like I said, a very effective method of teaching. And I, I like to use it when I'm dealing with kids and working on things. That's why I do object lessons. Because you take something that is familiar and teach a spiritual truth with it. The word itself, though, has a, a little bit broader of a, of a context than just one little thing. It can be fables, analogies, allegor allegories, proverbs, riddles, even figures of speech all fit into this idea of parables. And so what, what that does is lets us know that not all parables are exactly the same. Just because Jesus will use one method in one setting doesn't mean that every single time all parables are exactly the same and to be dealt with in the same way. There are estimates that Jesus used upwards of 30 different parables as he was teaching. And as those are to different people and in different settings and in different situations, the way that you deal with them needs to understand the context and what's going on and who Jesus is talking to before you try and just jump in and assume it automatically means X, Y, and Z. And so even, even though we may be familiar with and know something about this, we need to step back, slow down, dig into it, and understand, okay, what is going on here? Now, normally... I try and take a passage and go straight through it and not, not jump around within it. As we're looking at this one, though, I think that Jesus says something right in the middle that we really need to, to dig into and understand before we understand the rest of it. Starting off in verse 11, uh, or sorry, in, in verse 10, we find kind of a, a parenthesis in the middle of the parable. So we're going to see that Jesus is teaching in parables, and he teaches in a bunch of parables. That's his normal way of operating. That's what he's been doing. But then it looks like after he gets done teaching, which means some of these other parables probably got taught at the same time, the, the followers and the disciples go to him and they start asking questions. And they want to know, okay, what's going on with this? Verse 11 really gives us an explanation of why he's using these parables. Um, <clears throat> right before this, Jesus had been dealing with the religious leaders. That's what we've been looking at and dealing with, there were five different interactions that he had. And then I told you that there was kind of this, this transition right in the middle during chapter 3 in which it, he shifts his focus from the religious leaders to his followers. That's still part of what's going on. But in, at the end of chapter 3, we saw this setup where there are some people who are outside who aren't listening to him, who don't want to know, in those religious leaders who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and just rejected him, they saw the truth, they should have known the truth, they should have understood it, and yet they completely rejected him. We even saw that his family was standing outside, his physical family was standing outside, and he used that as an opportunity to teach, who is my real family? Those who know and do the will of the Father. That was who he said was his family. So, 
we have this context where there are some who are outside and some who are inside. And he uses that same picture here to express that those who are inside are the ones who are going to understand, and those who are outside aren't going to understand. Um, This creates two groups, uh, those who are going to get it and those who don't. Now, in verse 12, Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Um, there's a lot going on in that passage, so we're going, to, we're going to look at it briefly as well. But there's a lot going on there. But there's a phrase that he's going to use that says, in order that. And this creates an argument that, that becomes kind of challenging as we dig into this and we start trying to understand, okay, why is he using parables it's really easy to look at that and say, okay, he wants some people not to understand. He is trying to prevent them from getting it. And yet, I don't think that that's accurate. I don't think that that's true. Some people are going to see that and immediately jump onto it and say, oh, look, there's Calvinism. Jesus is picking and choosing, and some are getting it and some aren't. Others are going to jump up and look at it and say, oh, there's a contradiction. Jesus is exclusionary. He hates people and he loves others and that's just not okay. And yet, they've missed the context. They don't understand what's going on. And so I want to make sure that we don't miss that context. When we get to this, it is a difficult, challenging passage because why is Jesus doing this in order to hide the truth from some and express it to others? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. In, in this section, Jesus is going to quote from chapter 6, um, verse 9. You'll recall the context of chapter 6. God is looking for someone that he can send to... Uh, he says, who, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah stands up and says, here my Lord, send me. Isaiah was willing to go. And so Isaiah is then commissioned, and, and he even acknowledges, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm able to do this. My, my lips, they're, they're not great for this. God says, don't worry about that, I got this. But then God gives him his commission in verse 9. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, again, that seems, it sounds kind of odd. Like, wait a minute. Why are you trying to prevent them from turning, trying to prevent them from hearing and listening? Well, once again, context is key. If we go back to chapter 5, we see actually almost another parable. At the beginning of chapter 5, we find that God is using an example of a vineyard. And this this uh, example here is going to be very reminiscent to some of the parables that Jesus does as well. But God is talking about a vineyard. And in essence, he says, you know, Israel is my vineyard. And I have cared for her. And I have provided for her. And I built a wall to to protect her. And I nurtured her. And I took care of the ground. And I did everything that a farmer could possibly do to make sure that Israel would produce good fruit. And she didn't. And so I went in and I, I nurtured and I cared for and I tried to produce that fruit. And she didn't. 
So now I am taking away the walls, and the wild beasts are going to come through. <clears throat> um, and the, the destruction, uh, it's, it's in verse 6, I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned nor hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. So what's the context? What's going on? Prior to this point at which he says, you don't understand, you're not going to understand, stay where you're at. God has done everything that he possibly could to give them an opportunity to turn to him. What has happened here in, in Mark? What have we been looking at and seeing? God has been trying, or Jesus has been trying to get the religious leaders to follow him, to turn to him, to recognize he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and yet they have rejected it over and over and over again. They had opportunity, and they said, we don't care. We don't want to follow Jesus. We are rejecting him. And so the, the key thing to understand through that is not that God doesn't want people to follow him, but that he has done everything to give them the opportunity, and they are willfully ignorant. They have chosen to not believe. The religious leaders who should have known better we only looked at five examples. There's lots of times in which Jesus interacts with them, and yet they know who he is, they know the law, they should understand, but they have made the decision to reject him. And after that is when Jesus says, okay, you have rejected me. I'm going to teach in parables in a way that you're not going to understand, that you're not going to get it, and you're not going to turn back to me because you have made a choice. You have made a decision. And that's, that's really one of the main things that it comes down to is people are given that opportunity to make a choice. But when they decide against God, he acknowledges that. He accepts that. And he says, I'm, I'm going to allow that. And he even confirms it by what he does next. God is still going to complete his purposes. God is still going to teach, not despite their rejection, but at times because of their rejection. A great example that we are probably all familiar with is Pharaoh, when God was going to bring his people out of Israel or out of Egypt, right? It says over and over and over again that God hardened his heart. Well, why did God harden his heart? Because Pharaoh had already rejected, and Pharaoh wasn't following. In Isaiah, Israel had already rejected. And God was still sending Isaiah as a prophet, knowing that they're not going to accept, knowing that they're not going to turn. And we come here to Mark, and we see that G Jesus has talked to these uh, religious leaders over and over and over again, and they have rejected him, and they are not following him. And so, he turns his attention then to teaching his disciples. And in teaching them, he's going to teach them with parables. And those parables, he wants them to understand it. To the point that when they come, he, well, he starts off and he says, look, listen, behold, pay attention to this, I'm teaching you. He concludes it with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a desire that they learn, that they understand. And then when his followers come to him and they ask for clarification, he doesn't say, nope, nope, you should have gotten it, and if you didn't get it, then you're just clueless and I'm done. He sits down with them and he interacts and he explains it to them so that they will learn. His desire is that they will learn and that they will understand, but he also recognizes that there are those who have rejected and that not, not despite their rejection, but even with that rejection, God is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to accomplish his goals. Yes, sir? He essentially has given them all 
Exactly. Exactly. He has, he has turned them over to their own decision, to their own heart. We see that actually come up again uh, in Romans as well. But here's the thing that I want you to, to catch from this. And I know, I know we're covering a lot of, of these kinds of things. But I want you to notice this isn't necessarily a permanent result. Who is on the outside right now as he's teaching this? We, we just saw last week that his mother and his brothers were on the outside. And they were some of the ones who were trying to, to take him captive, who, to, to take control of him because they thought he was crazy. They were not followers. They didn't trust him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, though, after the resurrection, after the ascension, who is on the inside with the disciples, with the followers? In that verse, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that Mary and Jesus' brothers are with the disciples. They are on the inside now. And so even, even in that, I want you to, to understand, because verses 11 and 12 can be very challenging, and, and there is some difficulty in them. But even in that, I don't think that we should give up hope. I'm convinced that even the vilest offender, even those who have rejected and rejected and rejected, God is still calling out to them because he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, according to 2 Peter two or 3, verse 9. Sometimes God does use someone's rejection of him to accomplish his goals, even as he is at work to call them back to himself. God is merciful. And so one of the things that Jesus is doing is concealing and revealing through these parables. And throughout his entire earthly ministry, we're going to see that there are times at which this happens. But his goal, his desire is that people would understand and he is giving to them the mysteries of God. Now, that's one of those phrases that comes up that, that kind of seems odd. But a mystery is simply something that previously hadn't been revealed and now has been. And so Jesus is giving to them the mystery of the kingdom of God to his followers so that they would be able to receive that. And he wants them to understand those mysteries, recognizing that those who are on the outside are going to be left scratching their heads. They won't understand it. They won't get it. They won't know until they have turned to him. That brings us then to the second question. How do we deal with parables? If they are meant to be understood, then we ought to be able to understand them, right? So when we go through these, God wants to teach us. Jesus wanted his disciples and his followers to know certain things. So he is proclaiming things clearly. Um, Historically, though, there has been a wide spectrum of how to understand these. On the one end, a lot of people will, will allegorize. They'll take each and every little element and say, oh, well, this means this, and this means this, and this means this, and make the entire story an allegory. And on the other end, there's the concept that I more ascribe to, that there is one main point, that there's one focus. Now, that is a spectrum, and that's where, going back to what I had said earlier, when we deal with parables, we need to realize that each one's different. Each one's unique. Each one has its uh, elements that we need to dig into and understand and learn from. And so, is it possible that God will use allegory? Yeah, definitely. Is it possible that the, the parable has one truth and one only, and the rest is just the, the storyline to pass that and to help us understand that? Also, yes. So, we need to take each one individually to understand it. <clears throat> When, when dealing with allegory, 
um, I often think of two very famous extra-biblical accounts, stories, that come up with allegory. Uh, In one, the author clearly stated that he was writing an allegory and wanted people to understand certain spiritual truths based on the story that he was telling. In the other, the author said, no, I am definitely not writing an allegory. And yet, as you read through it, you understand, oh, there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of lessons, spiritual lessons, that I can learn and understand. Both of those men were godly Christians who wanted to teach, who wanted to learn, who wanted to follow him. And yet, they're writing completely different things. One of them is called The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Great kid story. In that story, Aslan is Jesus. He represents and is trying to help... C.S. Lewis is trying to help his reader to understand who Jesus is and the sacrifice that he gave. The white witch is Satan and terrible, evil, wicked, vile, trying to pull people away. Uh, Edmund is a betrayer and Peter is, well, Peter represents Peter. And he's trying to get things set up so that people would understand spiritual truths. That's an allegory. That's what they're there for. Each little element is teaching something. The other one is uh, written by J.R.R. Tolkien and it's the Chronicles of Narnia. And he very clearly said, no, or sorry, not Chronicles of Narnia, thank you. Um, it is the Lord of the Rings. And he very clearly said, this is not an allegory. I do not want you to think of it as an allegory. And yet, as you read through it, you see all kinds of spiritual truths. Good versus evil. Uh, overcoming adversity. Facing the impossible, only to realize that, yes, it is impossible under my strength. And yet, there's a higher power that is capable of seeing me through, of friendship, of dedication, self-denial, of overcoming temptation. And yet, it is not an allegory. It simply has some things that you can learn from it. So what does all that have to do with understanding Jesus' parable? Two simple words, authorial intent. When Jesus gives a parable, there's a purpose. He has an intention. And what that intention is, is what we need to take from it. We don't get to make our own choice and say, well, this is all allegorical and everything that he says, well, it means this and it means that and it means these things. Nor, if he is intending some allegorical elements, are we allowed to say, nope, nope, he's not allowed to do that. He must only have one thing and there's only that that we can take from it. We We don't get to determine how we deal with and how we understand parables. We have to take them in context, understanding each one individually, how it is set up, what Jesus is trying to do, not what we want it to say, and recognize that the crowd and the topic, the situation, the elements that he is teaching, all of that, how that fits together in what he is doing. So, oftentimes, people approach parables wanting them to say what they want them to say. We're not allowed to do that. We need to not do that. We need to understand specifically what it is that Jesus is conveying. This parable here is a great example of it. Um, it's one where I don't think that there's just one single point. I think that there's, there's several things that we can learn from it and draw from it. Um, and that the prevailing idea in, in it is this idea that, that most people, the prevailing uh, thought on this, that most people head straight to is, which of these soils is saved? Which one is a Christian? I don't think that's quite accurate. I don't think that that's what Jesus is focused on. And so we have a tendency to read into parables later things that happen, stuff that has occurred with the, the 
Apostle Paul and the other apostles as they've gone out, and we try and read that back into what Jesus is saying, and we have to be very, very careful not to. So, how do we understand this particular parable? What is the point of it? Uh, What are we going to do? Well, as with any uh, passage, you have to start with observation. So let's go back to verse 1 and observe what is the setting. What's going on here? It says in verse 1, He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him, and he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, and then it tells us this particular parable. So what's the setting? What's going on here? Okay, he's teaching. Kind of like he's been doing a lot. Over and over and over again, we find Jesus teaching. Teaching who? A crowd. A great multitude. A lot of people have gathered together. Um, We saw in a previous episode where he had a boat standing ready just in case because the crowd was pressing in so hard. Well, it looks like this crowd was pressing in so hard that he got into the boat And that's where he was teaching from. It made a nice platform. It made a good uh, setting for him to be able to teach from. It was a functional way in which he was able to teach. Um, So he's on on the sea, on the water, in this boat, while everybody else is there on the land, and he is teaching them. And the way that he is teaching them is through parables. And like I just said, there's a lot of different types of parables and ways that those parables can be done. And so he's, he's going to be teaching all of the parables that we're going to be seeing here in a little bit. He, it gives one specific one, and then it takes this pause where it expresses what we looked at there in verses 10 through 12 of the fact that not everybody's going to get it. Not everybody's going to learn it. And that's actually by design. That's his intention. Not because he's trying to not let them understand, but because they have already rejected him and they don't want to hear it. But his disciples then have questions about it. And so he will explain this one. But in this setting, he's going through a bunch of different parables. And we'll look at some of the other ones later. But this one in particular, we get into. The sower goes out to sow. This makes sense. This is a regular thing. They would recognize when a sower goes out to sow. Now, this is one of those where if you take the allegorical method and you say, well, everything's an allegory, one of the first questions that people would ask is, well, who's the sower? Well, we're going to find out in a minute. The sower's not a main person. The sower doesn't matter. There's not a focus on the sower. So if we approach this parable and try and make every little detail mean something, that's a problem. We're We're not listening to what Jesus has said. When he explains what this is, He doesn't say anything about the sower, just that the sower went out to sow seed. Now, in a parable, this is a normal, practical thing that they would be familiar with. We don't have that same kind of farming technique and farming understanding that they did. Today, if you look at someone who goes out to plant a field, what are they going to use? A tractor and a seed drill. And if, if you've seen them or if you're familiar, they're, they're great big. They can be you know, even 30, 40 rows wide. And it goes out and puts the seed in exactly the right place. And it even some of them will mix the fertilizer in so that no matter where on the field that seed is planted, it is, has the optimal chance of producing a result. Well, that's not the type of sowing that they were used to. That's not the way that they would have things. 
in that time and in that era, they would have their, their plot of land, and they would know, you know, this is my, my field, this is where I'm going to sow, and they would take this bag and go out, and they would broadcast the seed, and they'd spread it around, and some of the seed would land in different places. We're going to see that in just a moment. But they would broadcast the seed and send it, and then it would grow in this field. They would basically let nature do the rest. Not quite. They'd go out and, and tend it a little bit and all. But in general, they weren't adding the fertilizer. They weren't drilling the seed down. They weren't going through all of that. Today, they even have GPS to make sure that the seed lands exactly where they want it. They didn't have that at that time. In this one, the sower goes out to sow seed. Uh, this is a well-known idea for them, and he, he sows. In doing that, he is going to broadcast the seed to four different locations. Some of the seed falls by the road. That's the walkways around the field where people would, would tread, not through the middle of the, the field, but around the outside. And where they would walk would become very hard-packed. It's not a good place for uh, seed to grow. Some fell on rocky ground. This could mean that there's lots of rocks or also the idea that it's a shallow with a, a bedrock right there, that there's not enough soil for it to grow in. Either way, the, it's not an optimal place to put seed. It's rocky ground. Some fell among thorns and the weeds and other brambles. This, this is just a generic term for a prickly plant um, that were of no value. It was other plants, it was weeds, it was uh, thorny material that's not going to help their plants grow. And that would be kind of along the wayside in different areas. This is describing a regular way in which someone would broadcast seed. And it's going to land in all of these different areas. But then some of it fell on good soil. That's where you want to plant. So what happens to the, seed, to the seeds in each of these locations? Well, the birds eat some, some of it springs up, starts to grow, and then withers away. Some of it was choked out by the thorns and other plants that were growing in the area, and some of it yielded a crop. It's a cool story, but if you've ever done any planting of any kind, you've probably seen all of these results. You've most likely experienced all of them, where the soil wasn't great, or there was something in the soil that caused problems, or other weeds took over, or sometimes maybe you got a really good harvest. But what's the point? Why is Jesus telling this story? You know, that's a really good question. And in fact, his own disciples asked him that question. And he takes the time to explain it to them. He ends with the statement, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like I said, he'd started off with listen and behold. Uh, and so this provides the bookends of what he wants to be known. He wants them to understand. He wants them to learn from this parable, and he wants them to consider certain things. Now, depending on your mindset of how you approach these, you can come up with all kinds of different things and ideas and explanations, and that's part of what he's talking about, is that there are those who are followers of his, who are on the inside, who are going to take these parables and these stories the way that he wants them to be understood. And there are others who are on the outside who are not going to listen. They're not going to learn. They're not going to accept the message and the accounts of what Jesus wants them to know. His goal is to reveal to his disciples the mystery of the kingdom. That word mystery simply means a truth that up until then had not yet been revealed. Paul is going to use that phrase frequently. Um, it's not mentioned a whole lot in the Gospels, but 
Jesus was wanting to reveal and conceal certain things about God's purpose uh, and how they would be fulfilled. So he goes on to explain the meaning of the parable. And he presents us with a pattern of how to understand what the others are going to be as well. He starts off in verse 13 and he, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So he wants them to understand and he wants them to learn, but he wants them to know what he's teaching, not whatever answers or results they might want to come up with. He says the seed is the word. Like I mentioned, we know nothing about the sower. He doesn't focus on the sower. So when we approach the parable, we shouldn't say, oh, well, the sower must be, because that's not the focus. That's not what he's talking about. The seed, however, the seed is the word. Now, this is one where it's, it's not uncommon and not unusual for modern-day believers to say, oh, it's the gospel. And so he goes out and he's, he's telling the gospel and people are getting saved. That's not what he's dealing with. It's also not, oh, the scriptures. He's teaching the Old Testament. The, the, the uh, seed is the, the Old Testament because he doesn't use the word uh, for the Old Testament. He uses a, a very familiar, very common idea of logos. It's the word. It's a very broad term that in our minds, we think of the Gospel of John in which it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. In the beginning was the word. That's the same idea, this logos. Well, that's not what he's talking about either because that's, that's a later understanding that we have. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is that this is the message, the message that is being broadcast. Well, what is the message that Jesus came to proclaim? We saw that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15, that he comes to give the good news, the gospel of God, of the kingdom. And he's letting that be known. And as he proclaims that, different people are going to react in different ways to that message that he is proclaiming. So Logos is a very broad term uh, that simply means the message or the understanding or the explanation that he is giving. <clears throat> Jesus is sharing it currently. The disciples will share it eventually, but the focus is not on the one who's broadcasting this message as much as the word or the message is going out. In the first uh, soil, they hear it, but Satan comes and takes it away. Now, we're not told why they're hardened to the message, why they don't want to understand it, though in the context we've already seen these Pharisees and these scribes who are given the opportunity and they want nothing to do with Jesus to the point that they want to execute him. They want to get rid of him. Sounds kind of like this that he's describing here, a group of individuals who are hard-hearted and have no interest in hearing any message that Jesus might have. They hear it, but beyond just a superficial in one ear and out the other, there's no result from it. The second soil, uh, which is linked to the other by the, the phrase in a similar way, um, it goes in one ear and out the other in the first one, but in this one, uh, they are faced with a little bit of a challenge. They hear it, they initially get excited about it, but there's no depth, there's no root for it to take hold, and thus it is only temporary. Persecutions, afflictions, challenges come up. You know, in a different way of saying it, only idiots would believe that message. Or if you are a follower of that message, you lose your job. You get kicked out of your house. You get, 
And then they're faced with a decision. Do I follow this message or do I worry about those things? These two are, are linked very similarly. But then the third soil, it grows. It gets started, but then it gets choked off by other stuff. Rather than by persecutions, it is choked off by the distractions that take it away. This, this idea of the thorns and the thistles and this, the other stuff that grows up around it. Um, that's in verse 18. The others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who have heard the word, and the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The last one then, the fourth, grows and produces results. Now it says some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. So it produces a harvest. That's, that's the idea there. Some people have tried to read into that and, and make those numbers mean different things. It, it doesn't. It just produces a harvest. So then, let's look at these followers of Jesus and the message in its context. The first we see are like many of the Pharisees. They didn't want to hear Jesus. And we see over and over and over again that he gives a message and all they want to do is trap him and get rid of him. Satan takes that message away and they don't even listen to it. In the second, um, there are some Pharisees that are like the second one. Uh, I, what, what comes to my mind is often Nicodemus. He comes and he wants to interact with Jesus and he wants to learn, but he's a Pharisee, and so how is that going to work? How is that going to play out? There's also Jesus' family that would fit into this grouping. Um, and even many in the crowd and his own disciples fit into that. Think about the time when Jesus is crucified. Everyone runs away. They leave him because of the persecution. They get scared. What about the third? Well, I think of the, the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? Obey the law. Sell everything and follow me. We're going to get to that one in chapter 10 eventually. But I also think of Peter, that he fits into this one, as the number of times in which he goes back to fishing. Jesus has given this message, and rather than focus on the message and stick with what Jesus is teaching, he goes off and worries about worldly things, like making a living by fishing. What about the fourth? The fourth is the good soil. Did you notice I mentioned that his own disciples were in the second? And I mentioned specifically Peter in the third. I actually think that Peter fits into all four categories at different times and in different ways. We're going to come to a point shortly where Jesus makes a proclamation. He says the Son of Man must suffer. And what is Peter's response to that message? No, no, it's not going to happen. I'm going to prevent it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus had given a message, and rather than accept or listen, Peter reacts against it. And Jesus has to deal with that. He wasn't willing to hear or acknowledge that message. Later on, we find that Peter uh, runs away under persecution because of Jesus is crucified. And he, he gets scared, and he runs away, and he denies Christ over and over and over again. He had heard the message, and yet he denies Christ because of that persecution. As I mentioned, there are times in which he goes back to fishing. When he, he could have been out doing things, he's worrying about the world's stuff. But, ultimately, we see what happens with, with Peter. When we get to Acts, we find out that the message finally sinks in. 
And Peter responds, and in the book of Acts, he is one of the best preachers ever. And he has a huge result. Thousands, literally thousands, get saved because of him sharing that message. I'd say that produces quite the result. So I think as we approach this, oftentimes people have too narrow a view in looking at the parable of the soils and say, well, one person must be this and one person must be that. And that they, once, once you determine that, they're stuck there and there's no change. I don't think that that's quite what's going on. I think what's happening is that Jesus is letting it be known. I am proclaiming things. I'm letting things be known. And there's going to be different reactions to my message. And sometimes people aren't going to get it. That doesn't stop the sower from sowing seed in that area. Sometimes there's going to be issues. And people are going to want to hear it, but something's going to come up. And, and, and persecution's going to happen. And they'll grow up real fast to start and then fade away. And that's going to happen. And we're going to see that over and over and over again with followers of Jesus. We even see that still today. Then there's going to be others who, they, they start growing and all of the distractions of the world take them away. But the goal, the desire, the reason that the message is given is that they grow and produce results. We've just seen examples in which Peter fits into each of these. If you think of different things that you've learned from God's word, different things where you've heard a message and the different ways that you can react to that message, we're seeing all of those in each and every one of us. And so I think what we're finding out, what we're learning from this, is that it's not just one little thing of the idea of salvation, though there are elements of that. Obviously, when someone's saved, it should result in producing fruit. I'm not denying that. But the focus here is this idea that Jesus is giving a message. He's going to be teaching. And there will be all kinds of different reactions. And those reactions may even be in one person, in the same person at different times. But if we go back to Isaiah, we find out that God doesn't just give up on them. He nurtures the soil. He prepares the soil. He works the soil. If you have regular ground that's not producing, that you want to garden, we all know you add, uh, there are additives and there are ways to make it fruitful, to make it work. God does that in other parables and other examples. So I, I think that as we approach this parable, it's not dealing with the question of who's saved and who's not, as much as how are people going to respond to the message of Jesus? Obviously, there are implications for salvation, but I think it's much broader than that. If you've ever tried to grow anything, you know that soil augmentation can make a huge difference. I think the point here is that for the listener to examine how they react to the message that Christ brings, recognizing that we can each fall into any of these at different times as we hear the message of God. But God's desire is that we be good soil. As with Isaiah 5, the master gardener doesn't just throw it out, but he carefully tends and works the ground to make it productive. Even then, we saw that Israel rejected him and didn't bear good fruit. So what about you? When you hear the message, when you hear the word, whatever that might be, how do you respond to it? 
at different times, probably in different ways. But the, de- the desire, the goal, is that we all be productive, good soil. That when we hear something from God, whatever that message might be, when we hear his word, we allow it to grow and develop and produce a result instead of the things of the world distracting us and drawing us away. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you do teach in so many different and varied ways. Lord, you had an amazing way of helping people understand. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to be willing to hear, willing to learn, willing to grow. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't reject your word, but that we would be drawn to you, that we would produce the result that you desire, that we would live for you. Guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.